My name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today we're talking about D.W. Griffith. We're pulling him out. We're knocking the dust off of him. And we're like, listen, it's the first semester of film 101. Let's do the <laughs> Griffith episode. I got to say, this is one of those topics that I actually find pretty intimidating. Of course, because there's like a million books, documentaries, essays. A uh, hundred years of discourse. Yeah, about D.W. Griffith. What can we bring new to the table nothing absolutely nothing so nowadays cw griffith's reputation is pretty bad it's in that condition because obviously of the racism in birth of a nation yes and let's get it off the table now yep very racist movie yeah and frankly i think it's fine that his reputation has suffered to be honest i mean there were many decades where his reputation was he was the father of american cinema Mm -hmm. he was the greatest artist hollywood has ever produced and then there was a time when his reputation was He's the father of American cinema. Some people think Birth of a Nation is racist. Some people. And then, you know, there was a time when his reputation was he was the father of American cinema and he created a very racist movie. And now it seems to me, just, you know, wetting my finger and putting it in the air, that the current discourse is he was very racist. He created one of the most evil films ever made, but he was also a very important technical yeah, innovator. I think that's correct. I, I agree. I think that's a, a totally fair and reasonable perspective. I think- I think an important thing when you talk about a film like Birds of the Nation is that you can find it dramatically compelling, well edited and stuff like that and still be like, oh, it's also very morally repugnant. Yeah, I mean, the challenge of talking about D.W. Griffith in the current moment is there are some who would say, why talk about D.W. Griffith? Mm-hmm. Um, because the real world's consequences of Birth of a Nation uh, were awful. Were awful, very fast. Oh. People died because of the There's film. a documentary um, that Kevin Bronlow directed and one of the like assistant directors, I believe, of Birth of the Nation is like, well, it stirred up feelings and that means that, you know, it's successful as a motion picture. It's like, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't have to deal with that stuff. Anyway, I'm not going to defend us for talking about D.W. Griffith. I'm just going to say that we made it over 250 episodes without talking about him. So uh, <laughs> yeah. here we are. <laughs> and listen, Will had not seen Intolerance, one of the biggest movies ever. Yeah. And it was time for him to finally sit down and give it a watch. So I do want to say a little bit more about the racism, though. Okay. I th- Look, I think it's pretty commonly understood now why Birth of a Nation is racist. Mm -hmm. But I do think it bears repeating. I mean, you just need to watch the movie. (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, for years, for decades, people would rationalize it left and right. It's like, oh, well, he grew up in, you know, a different cultural environment. Yes, a racist cultural environment, which would make him racist. (laughs) Well, I mean, first of all, it's bullshit. The movie was protested at the time. So protested. It was regarded even by just like many white liberal viewers as, as racist as an unusually racist film and the NAACP like also attempted to stop showings of the movies there were also riots as well around screenings of the movie yeah so griffith always liked to say that he was simply presenting historical facts but that's obviously disingenuous because a lot depends on what facts you choose to highlight and the lessons you draw from them. Do you know that he had made a short where the Klansmen were a villain a little bit before Birth of the Nation came out? He knew what you could hone in on that would get people a reaction, and he didn't care if it was negative or not. And, oh boy, Birth of a Nation is just an awful mess. Basically, it's like, what's a racist movie? Here's Birth of a Nation. Well, yeah, it's like he shows the happy slaves were 
working in the cotton fields, but he doesn't show. Oh, but the lazy slaves in Congress. Yeah, well, he doesn't show all the slaves who were beaten and yeah. raped. And, you know, he shows, again, he says all this was based on historic fact. Maybe it was. But, you know, he shows the one roaming ex-slave who tries to rape the white woman. And the emphasis you put on this stuff. I mean, I mean, the, the movie ends. It literally climaxes on Election Day with all the black people leaving their homes to go vote. And then the Ku Klux Klan are like out in front of their homes on their horses. You don't get to vote. And they're like, "Uh oh, we better go back. His conclusion is the movie's idea is the slaves were given too much freedom too fast. And the solution is uh, we need to all of us reestablish the social order the way it needs to be. And they're also lazy and Mm. evil. Like, it's not a subtle like you watch or read um, documents from like the 70s and the 80s. It's like a lot of people allege this film was racist. And It's like I can see with my eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they would say things like, ah, well, he grew up the son of a confederate colonel yeah then he's hearing, racist yeah. like, that's, that's all it is and and what people also used to do was they would compare him to thomas w dixon who wrote birth of a nation mm-hmm. who i mean thomas w dixon was a a true ideologue he was like very racist mm-hmm. if you look at his writings you know he was a full-on like look at these black people look at their look at their faces look at their bone structures we cannot have these 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 things mating with our white women. He was that kind of racist. Mm-hmm. Whereas D.W. Griffith was kind of like, oh, wasn't the South so nice? It's a different like flavor of racism, but yeah, they're both racist. But like the D.W. Griffith version, it's not uh, so like in your face. So it's something that you kind of absorb as you watch just entertainment. And you're like, oh, this is just, you know, the Ku Klux Klan are good guys and all of these black Americans are bad guys as opposed to like, no, they're bad. And you're like, I can push away against that, but not when it's just entertainment. When you're a kid, you just kind of absorb this and then you go on with your life. Uh, before we get into D.W. Griffith further, mm-hmm. something that people always say about Birth of a Nation and they say about Triumph of the Will too, is it's great, but racist. Mm-hmm. And I'm not entirely sure that can be obviously it's technically incredible yeah well you can talk about the fact that like it's dramatic structure is compelling in the sense of like it's well edited it's it's building to something but then it's the content that you have to pull back from and it's like well i cannot get invested in this as it plays yeah i mean the movie is a very stirring and powerful articulation of a bunch of very diseased and ugly ideas Mm -hmm. and the ideas are so central to it that i don't think i don't think the film can really be called great if the if the ideas the the whole the whole reason for being are so diseased Mm -hmm. so i mean i also don't want to do the thing where it's like well we've moved past griffith it's like yeah like there's ugly and probably Problematic stuff all around mm-hmm. us. Hashtag problematic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Hashtag take down D.W. Griffith. <laughs> when, when, when film Twitter finally going to jump on the Gr- Griffith's corpse? I know. I, you know, it's funny. We've been talking for 10 minutes about Birth of a Nation as if a million people haven't said this already. But, <laughs> yep. But hey. Listen, I, people I, just want to hear the hits. Talking about D.W. Griffith is so hard because I don't want to do the thing where it's like, okay, but now that that's out of the way, let's talk about all the good stuff. Oh, you mean Intolerance is All Lives Matter movie? <laughs> I think there are a lot of reasons why people would have a hard time with Griffith mm-hmm. and not and not just the racism of Birth of a Nation. I mean, yeah, speed up those intertitles. Oh, man, they're on screen for so long. The films have a certain old fashioned mm-hmm. Victorian perspective. There's also just the fact that I think that silent dramas can be difficult to connect with a century later. They're very earnest. They're paced differently than we were used to. But that's the thing with D.W. Griffiths, right, is when he hits like the 
highs of excitement and set pieces like Birth of a Nation or even Intolerance that they're speaking a cinematic language that would then be integrated into what we know in this day as like a set piece. I mean, I think there are action scenes and spectacle scenes Mm -hmm. in Griffith's movies, particularly Birth of a Nation and Intolerance that are still unsurpassed, Mm -hmm. actually. Like, I don't think anybody has done anything like the falling of Babylon in Intolerance. No, absolutely not. Even though when you're watching it, and we'll get into this, it's It's like, yeah, and which character am I following? (laughs) What's going on? I do think it's possible to appreciate some of his movies on a richer level than just historical curiosity. Yeah, well, that's... I think that that's why people have such a visceral reaction to them and get so defensive, because they do have that kind of, like... I find this very compelling that when you turn around and you're like, this is clearly racist, their first reaction is, well, something I find compelling can't be racist because that would make me bad. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a reason why we're still watching and talking about Birth of a Nation all these years later, but we're not talking about The Eternal Jew, that Mm -hmm. Nazi documentary, because in addition to being evil, it's like not interesting in any way. I feel like you could probably just screen Oscar Micheaux's Within Our Gates instead. I think that's probably what film history classes are doing right now Mm -hmm. as we speak. A little bit of background about D.W. Griffith's life, though, before we get into some of the other movies. He was born in Kentucky in 1875. He often claimed to be from an aristocratic Southern family, but his upbringing was actually much more difficult than that. The key fact of his childhood that everyone knows, everyone says, is that he was the son of a Confederate colonel during the Civil War, and until his father died when he was 10, he would often be regaled with stories of wartime heroism, many of them very fanciful. And After his father died, that caused the Griffith family to struggle quite a bit throughout his teenage years. When he got older, he became a playwright, a theater actor. He did not go to school, but he was a ferocious autodidact, read a lot of history, read a lot of read read a lot of everything. Eventually, in 1908, he found his way into the movie business, starting as an extra at the Biograph Company in New York and very rapidly like within a year he rose to being the top director there. hey do you want to direct this person's sick and they can't direct yeah sure i'll do it wow okay it was anyone as, could get a job at this point it was, <laughs> making it, movies it was as simple as that because movie making was not a high class profession at this time Mm-mm. it was a working class profession many people from hard scrabble backgrounds like dw griffith built the industry and a lot of movies especially around that time were viewed as gimmicks like this very low class stuff like uh, you know you go see it like burlesque or something like that. We know, of course, that a lot of the technical innovations that were credited to D.W. Griffith over the years Not true. He didn't actually invent. He didn't invent the close-up. He didn't invent the moving camera or the cross-cutting but he did synthesize all of these innovations. Right. That's the thing, is that oftentimes when people would talk about D.W. Griffith, even when we were teenagers they're like, he invented the close-up, he invented the grammar of movies, and now you can just look and like, that's just not true. (laughs) Like, you can look, not even just world cinema, but American cinema as well we're figuring those stuff out and Griffiths kind of like Will just said integrated it and because he wasn't even a big fan of close-ups when he was shooting his shorts he really liked to shoot things like a proscenium just like as if you were watching a stage show because that's what he was familiar with well his early movies from 1909 to 1915 when Birth of a Nation came out they're interesting to watch because you see the motion picture as a medium discovering itself through those films he starts out very much as a man of the theater, just making these film stage plays, basically. But then as they go along, you see more interesting and more complex compositions. You see stage acting turn into screen acting. I mean, 
this is where his famous close-ups start to come to the fore. An actress like Lillian Gish, who is his most famous actress, was one of the first great screen actresses because in those close-ups, she could really convey a huge range of emotions fairly minimally, just just with minute gestures in her face, the sort of thing that could not be communicated on stage. And in the features he made, he was very important at elevating the perception of the motion picture, popularizing the idea that it could be an art form. And also, I mean, when you look at Birth of a Nation and Intolerance, they bring elements of theater, photography, painting, and even some elements of literature together into into a new form. And also making it a serious art form by writing his name on every intertitle, just in case you forgot who directed the film. In a sense, he was the first guy that like, he needs to be bigger. It needs to be better. I mean, that's what actually led to the outs was Biograph was that his shorts were taking too long to make and they were too expensive. So he had to go off on his own pass to make movies because he was one of those artists that like needs to be bigger. It needs to be grander for it to have value. And in terms of what a modern audience could appreciate about some of these films, not necessarily Birth of a Nation, but some of the other ones, I think all of them have moments of very exquisite visual beauty. Oh, yeah. And very deep emotion, which, I, I mean, again, it's it's old and it's very earnest, but if you can get on its wavelength, I think you can still feel some of the scenes. Like, I just watched Way Down East, which features Lillian Gish as an unwed mother whose child is born sick and dies shortly after. And there's this very moving scene where she's like cradling the dead child and she, she can't, she, she can't give it up basically. And I don't think any audience could watch that even today and not feel something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it should also be noted that um, D.W. Griffith, some people associate his work with leading to the cinema moving out of like tents and little places into the big grand halls and the movie palaces that we can only dream of. I mean, that's that's true because mm-hmm. Birth of a Nation was such a massive movie and then Intolerance, which was not as successful, but he would do these big roadshow engagements with a traveling 12-piece orchestra. And people are like, what? A score made just for the movie and it's blaring as you watch it? Insane. And this brought a different class mm-hmm. of people to the movies. Yeah, so no more lower class. Now it's the upper uh, class that comes to the movies. Well, I mean, there were lots of lower class yes. because Griffith himself, too, came from a hard scrabble background. And yeah, but he wanted that prestige of the rich people, their monocles falling out and stuff well, like that. I mean, certainly he did, but I mean, he, he felt very deeply issues of class. Oh, yeah. I mean, all his movies are about that. I mean, but it's poverty porn at a certain point, right? When they're playing in these big grand halls. Well, I mean, I mean, sure. You could say that about <laughs> yes. you could say that about like every movie about class that shows up at a film festival. Uh, yeah, I and I would. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, Griffith did tell a lot of these stories about like greedy industrialists Mm -hmm. and crusading moralists. And in a lot of the films, like the poor and the downtrodden and the sinners are treated empathetically. I mean, in a very old fashioned way. Well, yeah, Uh, like intolerance is like pro-union because you see like mm-hmm. the union workers that are going on strike get shot down based on a real life event. And intolerance has those like busybody moralists who mm-hmm. are trying to like uplift the poor and take away, take away the babies from the unwed mothers, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so like Griffith, as old fashioned and reactionary as he is in many ways, in other ways, uh, his sympathies are often with the poor and downtrodden. As for the visual beauty of his films, I will quote from Andrew Saris, who said, 
said, uh, he managed to synthesize the dramatic and documentary elements of the modern feature film. He traced the paths of his players across natural landscapes without the slightest trace of incongruity. For Griffith, a tree was more than a tree. Its strength and vulnerability expressed metaphorically the emotional life of its heroines. And late in his life, Griffith famously said about modern movies, like movies of the 1940s, uh, what the modern movie lacks is beauty, the beauty of moving wind in the trees. And, you know, that was a time when the movies were very studio bound. And no one can deny that Griffith's films had a huge amount of that wonderful outdoorsy pictorial beauty. Yeah, I mean, him and Billy Blitzer, who was his cameraman, what an amazing name, post the arrival of sound, filmmaking and a lot of people will say this like lost a lot of the visual invention because it demanded that cameras be locked down soundproof mm-hmm. the moving camera kind of disappeared for a long time or, or it was not as prevalent as it was in the silent era when they were experimenting and figuring out new stuff to do because new technology kind of anchored them in place and that only continued when you got the stuff like widescreen and trying to steal people away from television because you know dw griffiths was in the point of evolution and it's funny that sound even though it's like we're bringing it closer to reality kind of took away a lot of that which is why people like kevin brownlow will be like oh yeah you know once sound arrived movies just not for me by the way i want to say something about kevin brownlow because kevin brownlow for those who don't know he's a great preservationist a great film historian somebody who interviewed so many of the great silent film creators and preserved their memories when nobody else was doing it his book the parade's gone by is an essential tome on the shelf of any cinephile and yeah yeah, he's done peerless work. Uh, here we go. I am just going to say that if you get him on the subject of D.W. Griffith or Lenny Riefenstahl, he is un- boy. unbearable. I mean, the Twilight Time Blu-ray of Birth of a Nation has an essay by him called mm. We Must Not Censor the Past. No one's censoring the past, man. Nobody's censoring the past. They just want to talk about it in a different way. Yeah. They just want to talk about it with a different context. Mm-hmm. I read a piece about Lenny Riefenstahl that quoted him as saying, art must never be confused with politics or something like oh that. Oh my God. And I'm sorry. Triumph of the Will. It's literally a political manifesto. Yeah, I mean, if if Triumph of the Will is great, which I don't believe, but if... Ugh, what a snooze. Yeah, <laughs> but if it's great, it's because it's an unusually beautiful visual articulation of a political philosophy. Yeah, and that if it, you know, the power that it had was from, oh, wow, I feel influenced by this to go forward <laughs> with these awful things. Yeah, I mean, if you remove politics, you're just looking at, you might as well... Parades. Be, yeah. <laughs> ah, the Macy's Day Parade of 2021. Yeah, I mean... What it, power? Yeah, if, if it's just that, I'd rather watch Fun in Balloon Land. <laughs> so, Intolerance. Wow, what a spectacle, I will. So, Intolerance has a funny story behind it, which I'm sure many cinephiles are familiar with. This film came out a year after Birth of a Nation in 1916, and it Wild was... Wild that it, he released it a year after. It, I know, genuinely incredible. Well, so did you hear how it kind of evolved out of the fact that he saw the Italian production... Caribia and was like, wait a minute, you can build giant sets and move the camera? I want to do that too. Yeah, there was that. And also the movie tells four stories <laughs> and and one of the two major ones, he actually started before Birth of a Nation mm-hmm. came out. And it's the modern story. After Birth of a Nation was such a huge success, he was like, wait a minute, I'm going to tell four stories and, and I'm going to express a huge idea. And the big idea he expressed was his reaction to being criticized for Birth of a Nation. <laughs> so it, I'm like the people at Intolerance. You're the intolerant one. Yeah, for many years, people assumed that Intolerance was him sort of making Apologizing, yeah. yeah. It was like, oh, I'm sorry for all that racism. <laughs> nope. Here's a movie about how racism is 
bad. That's, I mean, you just got to watch Intolerant. That's not what the movie's about. Yeah, it is a movie about how intolerance, that is intolerance to other points of view, is the great evil from b- the beginning of time to now. The far left, if you will. <laughs> We all got to come meet in the middle. It does tell those four stories. There's the fall of Babylon. This is the most impressive part. This Mm -hmm. is the part that people think about where he built this massive, massive, massive set on Sunset Boulevard with hundreds of extras. And what it's famous for is right at the beginning of act two, there is a, they built a giant elevator to do a crane shot that like starts at the top and they cut right in the middle of it. I don't know, like they don't go all the way to the bottom, but essentially you see like a big crane shot of like thousands and thousands of people walking on this gigantic set. And they're all choreographed. They're all doing something. And the movie is full of moments like this. The battle scenes, there's stuff in so many different parts of the frame all of it choreographed and like your eye is just not used to taking this much visual information in it's unbelievable the other parts i don't think are as good and i would also say that the intercutting while very daring is very haphazard it's like i guess i'm cutting to this now well okay in fairness he was inventing it at the time he was he was (laughs) but it is haphazard well yeah i'm not necessarily convinced by the parallels between the stories so (laughs) oh one of them was uh being shot before the other three ah yes i could see that yeah so the modern story it's about a mill owner who cuts the worker's pay and it leads to a strike and that ends up casting out the boy and the girl and the boy and the girl live in live a life of crime until they decide to reform themselves but the boy is framed for a murder he didn't commit and as he is sentenced to death row this is compared visually to another one of the stories the crucifixion of christ mm-hmm. and i'm not convinced that this story has a lot to do with christ no me and, neither and then there's the fourth story which is france during the renaissance the intolerance between the protestant huguenots and the catholic royals that led to the saint bartholomew's day massacre and all of these stories i mean it's it's babylon and the modern story that take up most of the screen time jesus gets five minutes maybe throughout yeah. the whole spectacle and there's a framing device of a woman played by Lillian Gish next to a cradle with a baby in it that's rocking and she is symbolic of a kind of eternal mother and the baby is us I guess <laughs> intolerance itself no. strangle it in its crib no, no, I know <laughs> the baby's us but intolerance is going to get that baby. Yeah. And apparently Griffith, when he made this movie, genuinely believed that this is the movie that could unite humanity. (laughs) This would stop all wars. I love it. It it boggles the mind that he read the story of the life of Christ and was like, well, this is about intolerance to other points of view. (laughs) And if, I don't know, if if the Romans had simply, had simply been tolerant of Christ, it would have been okay. Yeah, if everyone was just like, listen, you're not hurting my feelings. I'm not really hurting you. I'll just step out of your way. I mean, I got to be honest. I I mean, of course I enjoyed this movie. You can't put that much stuff on screen and not enjoy it, right? Yeah, so it's an amazing movie that I think its its thesis is not very interesting. Its presentation and execution is compelling, but its narrative is not. Because it's like, okay... When are we going to go back to Babylon? <laughs> Let me show the cool stuff. Yeah, definitely. Uh, anyway, thumbs up, though. Check it out. Yep. And um, uh, intolerance. <laughs> yeah, listen. How about none of us are intolerant? But you know who was intolerant? The public to this movie, because it didn't make enough money to save DW's production company. And he was basically, I don't think paying off debts, but in the hole for the rest of his career because of this movie. And a lot of that was not because he spent so much money on the movie, but because he spent so much money on these traveling roadshow. The movie 
movie itself apparently made enough money to pay for itself. But Oh yeah, because the movie wasn't known as like a big financial flop or anything like that. Not in its day. It developed a reputation yes. for being a huge flop because he was in debt forever, but it was because of this, yeah, just this elaborate publicity that he did around it. He sank so much money into that. I mean, a few years later, he joined with Charlie Chaplin and Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks to start United Artists. And they led to nothing but success, right, Will? Well, there were a few successes. Mm -hmm. There was Broken Blossoms. Yep. There was Way Down East. Broken Blossoms is sort of interesting because it has... Yeah, yeah. Sort of, yeah. What what, what else am I going to talk about? It's the D.W. Griffith episode. Where it's like, is he racist? He showed a man in yellow face kissing a white woman. Ah, they don't kiss. Oh, they don't. But, but... (laughs) There you go. I'm already polluted by... By the D.W. Griffith mythology. Yeah, okay. So yeah, uh, Broken Blossoms, maybe the first interracial love story in film history. But of course, it's an inter- interracial love story from 100 years ago. So And it's, it's, and it's also, again, like it's yellow face. So it's like, hey, yeah. hey, hey, don't worry. You yeah. know there's a white guy under that makeup. Although it was considered very daring in its time, mm-hmm. which, you know, uh, okay. who cares? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, D.W. Griffith scholars are like bursting down our door. <laughs> you know, whatever. And uh, th- Kevin, Kevin, Kevin Brownlow, please. Please don't send an angry letter. <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed watching Way Down East, I got to say, even though it's two and a half hours long. That's a good one. Yeah, it's very beautiful. And it has that extraordinary final action oh. sequence on the ice. Jackie Chan-esque, considering yeah. how much danger the actors were in when they, for most of it. Because isn't there a story that goes that like Lillian Gish like lost a finger or two being on the ice? Oh, that- oh God. I don't know what happened to her, but something happened to mm. her. Did she get pneumonia? Yeah, uh, something like folks, that. Folks, write in and tell us what happened to Lillian Gish. But uh, No, please don't. From the mid 20s onwards he never had a hit again what are you talking about me and you both watched the walter houston starring abraham lincoln film are you trying to tell me that that creaky undramatic production was not a success of any kind this film came out in 1930 it was his penultimate movie and this is griffith playing the hits he made it for the producer joseph schenk uh, I'm probably mispronouncing mm-hmm. that. And it was sort of the end of a long contract. And Schenk was kind of like, this seems like the most commercially viable option for you right now is another movie about the Civil War. And when I was watching the remaster that Kino did, it starts with a couple of scenes that don't have any sound because we're missing from most prints. And I was leaning forward in my seat. I'm like, oh, man, here we go. Very visually dazzling. There's like a long tracking shot across a miniature set of trees <laughs> that they keep cutting back back and forth between a bunch of stuff. I'm like, hey, it's a good old DW. He's back with his visual dynamo. And then 90 minutes of people in rooms talking to each other. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I first heard about this movie because it was included in a influential book from the 1970s. Oh, I know who it is. Is it what? The Medveds? That's right. A book called The 50 Worst Films of All Time. Okay, easy there, Medvedz. I guess it was on whatever public access show they were watching at the time, right? Well, that's the thing. They wrote that book. They were on a deadline with that book, and they didn't have DVDs at the time, so they would just they were just watching whatever was on late night TV and putting in the book. Mm-hmm. So if you read that book, it's a ton of movies you haven't heard of and that are not interesting, <laughs> yeah, are not, are not right. even bad. Well, you know what? It gave Ed Wood his time in the sun. So. I didn't. The sequel book did. Oh, yeah. uh, how dare didn't I? Didn't even mention Ed Wood in I've book. never picked up any of those books. They're bad. Yeah, they're bad. Why would I? But anyway, Abraham Lincoln, like you say, it's boring, but it opens with an unbelievable scene, like Mm. like a scene that will, will shake you to your core. 
and this scene has nothing to do with anything that comes after. And it was taken out of most prints of the film, and it was only recently restored. And it takes place on the Middle Passage on a slave ship, and you you see the the people running the slave ship go down into the into the bottom of the ship where all the African slaves are chained up and they're standing. They're like, how many dead? You know, one of them pulls up a body and throws it overboard. And then it just cuts to the Lincoln story. And we never see any of this again. And nobody until Steven Spielberg with Amistad in American film until Spielberg had depicted a slave ship like this. Mm-hmm. You know, and probably nobody until Mandingo in, in an American film had depicted like slavery just so, so brutally. Mm-hmm. And it was, sorry to say, it was D.W. Griffith who did it. Yeah, I but it was know. cut out. Nobody saw it. <laughs> I, it. It is too bad. Like, it's it's incredible that he was the one who did it, which doesn't redeem anything else that he did. It's mm. just a, a fascinating thing. And I mean, it doesn't redeem this movie, which, oh boy. So I kind of enjoyed Abraham Lincoln. Did you? I mean, not a lot, but. but I like, you enough. know what? I like seeing Walter Houston. I thought he was a great Lincoln. Yeah, he is. I love Walter Houston when he gets to be in a main role. I kind of like just how hagiographic this movie is. But I'm like, where's the drama? It's just like, and then Lincoln succeeded. The movie almost feels like one of those Civil War photographs. (laughs) You're expecting Ken Burns' voice to come over it at one point to explain what's going on. It is so creaky and static. Mm -hmm. White zombie-ish, if you will. (laughs) Yeah, like it it feels like an artifact. I thought that it wasn't that static in moments. Like there's an amazing shot of Lincoln when he's young cutting wood and he's like on top of a bunch of wood and there's a woman in the background and that was at the beginning where I'm like ah oh, yeah here's that kind of visual invention that I want then that kind of faded away. I think it's fun to see some of the iconic moments, like him getting shot at the end. I uh, liked how undramatic it was, where he just kind yeah. of like, just go, ugh. And there's not even like a real big loud gunshot sound. Yeah, I mean, th- this is all the stuff I kind of like about the movie, even though <laughs> I agree it's not all that good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was critically acclaimed at the time. Wow. I think because the critics... Uh, wanted, you know, they they felt bad that things had gone so badly for Griffith, and this looks like a comeback movie. Mm-hmm. This is ah, Griffith's back, and he's he's playing the hits. But it was not a huge financial success. He made only one film after, and then he lived into the 1940s and basically drank himself to death. Uh, uh, but you're skipping over uh, the story that maybe he directed some of that amazing footage of lizards fighting that gets recycled in movie after movie. What, you mean 1 million VC? Uh, yeah. yeah, 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 I love that. Did you ever hear that story, though, that like he no. may have directed some of that stuff because it was like Hal Roach um, asked him to shoot that footage? Of the lizards? Yeah, you didn't hear you never heard that before? So that footage, which was repurposed in Robot Monster, mm-hmm. I guess you can say that D.W. Griffith kind of co-directed Robot Monster. Mm-hmm. The two greatest masters, <laughs> the two men who built Hollywood, Phil Tucker and D.W. Griffith. I'm shocked that you had never come across that story before. No. Yeah, somebody wow. tweeted at me and I was like, oh yeah, I've heard that. I mean, maybe I knew it at one point, but mm-hmm. that's incredible. Yeah, and like Will said, he died at like a Hollywood hotel like all of those silent film directors. Forgotten and alone. Mm-hmm. Orson Welles in his later years said, he said something along the lines of, I've never hated Hollywood except for how it treated D.W. Griffith. That's fair. Orson Welles was a progressive man, did a lot of good. I would just say that you should really hate Hollywood for how it treated Oscar Michaud. Did Hollywood ever even know of Oscar Michaud? Not really. Oscar Michaud, a man who was a true self-made success story, a man who self-financed and self-distributed many, many films that he wrote and directed dealing with uh, great films. Mm. 
he would, of course, never be allowed within 500 feet of a studio because he was an African-American. Yeah. Uh, D.W. Griffiths kept being able to make movies throughout his career. And he made Intolerance. Yeah, that's right. He, he, what a spectacle. He built a gigantic on set <laughs> on, on Sunset Boulevard. Which rotted. And how long was it there for? For decades. Because it's talked about at length in Candace Anger's Hollywood Babylon. Mm-hmm. And there's some great photos of it's like, you know, uh, rotten corpse of well, these giant Babylon sets. I wish it was still there. We should we should go and, uh, <laughs> and visit the spot where it used to be. Yeah. All right. Next uh, trip that me and Will take to L.A. So as per usual, you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com. And our first letter goes, dear Justin and Will, I'm a regular listener to your podcast. And thanks for playing a big role in helping me explore a new horizon of films about which I have no clue at all. Also, special thanks for encouraging me to read film criticism, which is something that I never did till I got acquainted with you guys. Oh, well, uh, glad we could help you out. I have a question. Do you think that an opinion about a picture that you love may alter if a critic whom you mostly rely on denounces it completely? This problem often occurs to me. Similarly, I often have problems with many of their views. For example, Jonathan Rosenbaum wrote a long review of Martin Scorsese's Age of Innocence, making many distasteful remarks, but even calling Scorsese as a drooling paisan. That's kind of a notorious review. Mm. I, I hear people bring that up sometimes. Another respectable critic, Mark Kermode, once said that Jean-Luc Godard is the most overrated filmmaker of his generation, and he, Kermode, felt that the 1983 remake of Breathless has a better picture than the original. Do you think that similar... I actually really like uh, the Richard Gere Breathless by Jim McBride, man. Yeah, it's good. Uh, The letter continues. Do you think that similar views of critics whom you admire affect your assessment about a film and filmmakers negatively? Also, can you do an episode on Carl Theodore Dreyer? Keep up the good work. Best, James. Uh, We should do one on Dreyer. Yeah, I I really like Dreyer. Yeah. So, uh, I think that like critics that I really like, like J. Rowe, I mean, they're wrong. Just like me and Will are wrong. And we, like, we may dislike or like something that you're like, I completely disagree with First you. First of all, nobody's wrong. Everybody comes with their own <laughs> point of view. Listen, you know what that sounds like? Intolerance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, people come with a lot of different points of view and those points of views can inform your own reading of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't think of a particular example off the top of my head, but the last 10 years has seen an explosion in film criticism from people of lots of different kinds of voices. People who look at film in a different, Uh, whether it's a gender or racial or class lens, Mm -hmm. those sorts of critics can bring a whole new understanding of a film can complicate your enjoyment of it. Certainly. Mm -hmm. I know they, I know it has happened to me. I can't, Oh, I mean, I can't think of a particular, like a particular instance of this, but like I grew up loving Ace Ventura pet detective Mm -hmm. and like certainly having read a lot more trans critics over the years, I can't look at that. (laughs) Yeah, Don't go back to read Will's review that he wrote on an, on a piece of paper when he got out of the theater. Yeah. (laughs) stars. Yeah, when I was four years old. (laughs) The movie of the season. Yeah. Yeah, I think that like J-Ro, what I love about him is his passion for filmmakers that I haven't really heard about and the way that he can make them sound enticing and interesting. That's what like his books are filled with. Now, when he's talking about movies that I'm like, I know this movie, I'm like, eh, you know, we get it. Yeah, Star Wars is evil, et cetera, et cetera. Small Soldiers is good. I love those reviews, man. <laughs> they're, I don't know. they're all right. It's just like, okay, this is like a, another, you know what? Uh, a film Twitter normie opinion. <laughs> well, like- there are only film Twitter normie opinions because 
because he pioneered them. That's okay, true. he was on the front lines. I mean, don't you love him though on stuff he likes, like Kiristami? But that's what I mean. Yeah, that, I love yeah. him on stuff that he likes and like discovering because he makes it. He can write in a way that I'm like, I need to see this movie. This sounds like the greatest thing ever. I think it's happened more that critics have written about movies that have made me appreciate them more. That's what I mean. Yeah. Is that yeah. like like um, hot takes or stuff like that? I don't really remember those reviews, or I'm not personally attracted to critics who do those things because you don't need like a movie that I probably uh, wouldn't like or don't like. And then you tell me that you don't like it unless they find a really interesting way for me to view it. And I'm like, I never thought about it that way. I can think of an example, actually. You know, one of the first really serious art films I saw was Werner Herzog's Nosferatu. Mm -hmm. And when I saw it, I probably would have been 11 when I saw it, like like that young. And of course, I hated it. I was like, this is so boring. This is so slow. He, he, if, I, if I was 11, I would have thought the same thing. I, it's, it's like, I was watching this, like he, he just, he just like, filmed a sunset like <laughs> like there was there's no story yeah where's the vampire he's not jumping around or you know sucking blood or doing fun stuff exactly it's like this isn't scary and then i read the roger ebert review mm. and ebert of course was very good on herzog and his review when i was 11 like totally changed my perspective uh on that on that movie and others did we do an episode on ebert we did early on yeah oh i don't remember what i said in that one but probably something along the lines like he had no place in my life so it's always interesting people are like Hi, Ebert. Like, he's a touchstone. I'm like, never watched him on TV, never read any of his reviews until I was in college. Yeah. But it's undeniable that he is, like, the main man. That's like, J-Ro, for me, is the one who's like, look at all this film. Like, I stumbled upon him accidentally browsing the, you know, library aisles. Yeah, I mean, Roger Ebert and, I guess, Leonard Malton, too, mm. for me growing up, they were kind of like, here are the opinions. Here yeah. are the normal opinions. And then you see somebody like J-Ro who's like, ah, but what if you had these opinions? Mm. But, like, like you said, like, great movies. We've said this before, actually. Like those books are great to understand like, okay, this is why this film is considered a classic. Definitely. Yeah. So yeah, I can't think of anything. Cause I don't know, man. Usually it's, if I disagree, you know, thoroughly with something like that. Uh, yeah. I've never been really turned off a critic, but I don't really have any like pet critics that I'm like, Ooh, what does this person think of this movie? Yeah, not anymore, really. Mm -hmm. um, not even J-Roll. I'm not like, oh, what does he think of a new movie? Well, he doesn't really write reviews no. anymore, does he? All he does is he posts on Twitter all those topless <laughs> photos <laughs> all the time. It's yeah. like, J-Roll, please, no! Yeah, yeah, you know what? You know which critic I check in on is Paul Schrader on his Facebook page. Oh uh, well, not anymore. Well, not anymore because now he's been silenced yeah. by the man. Yeah. So you know what that sounds like? Intolerance <laughs> to Paul Schrader's views. Rest in peace to a real one. <laughs> He's going to die, like, next week. <laughs> he doesn't look like he's taking care of himself, I gotta say. Nah, but you know what? He has a new movie coming out. Can't wait. I can't believe that Tiffany Haddish and Oscar Isaacs are in the movie. Ah, what a win. So, uh, if you would like to send us letters, you can do so on PornCinemaClubPodcast at gmail.com. And this week on our Patreon, what are we talking about, Will? We are going back to 1945 to talk about a movie in which you can see the actual birth of a baby. We're talking about the Roadshow Exploitation Classic the sex hygiene film of films, Mom and Dad. I hope you didn't pay for the full seat because you're only going to need the edge. You're going to hear a lot about this movie, which by some estimates was the third highest grossing film of the entire 1940s. 
wild. Well, you can listen to us talk about it by giving us five bucks and then going to patreon.com slash the import cinema club. Actually, you probably want to go to the website, then give us five bucks because I can't promise to give you access if you just, you know, send us money. And hey, when you do that, you'll get access to 200 Patreon episodes. Oh my God. I can't believe we've done 200 Patreon episodes. It's insane. About about all sorts of crazy topics. You know, we did a Patreon episode about the guinea pig movies. (laughs) Yep, we did. What else did we do, Amon? Basically, everything. Any kind of like side thing that like, oh, this came out on Blu-ray or like, wouldn't it be funny to do an episode on this? Wouldn't, it be, fun- wouldn't it be funny to yeah. is, is the guiding ethos of the Patreon. Yeah, because I've heard some people have sent me emails being like, listen, I like the main feed, but you know, the Patreon's not really my kind of thing. No, this is what you want to listen to because yeah. we don't even just like riff for 20 minutes. Like we usually talk about the movie. That's right. <laughs> and deep dive into the guinea pig series. Also, we get, we get letters from people who say they like the Patreon episodes better. <laughs> yeah, that's because there's more riffing on them. Yeah. No, listen, just check out Loose Cannons. Then you get a lot of riffing on that podcast. But speaking of the number 200, we're almost at 200% on the Indiegogo for Gold Ninja Video. Oh, man. So that's pretty crazy. Yeah. For If you didn't listen last week, Justin has an Indiegogo campaign where he is scanning and restoring prints of beautiful forgotten corners of film history. Kung, right. Kung Fu movies. Yeah, right to Will's right right now is there's a box that has 35 millimeter prints in it of a movie that has never been released properly on DVD. Past the original goal. Yeah. Zoomed about past it, thanks to everybody's support. So we still need some money to scan a Kung Fu mm-hmm. film. Yep, that's right. And it's going to be released on Golden Ninja Video. And then... Uh, Justin wants to get a scanner. So I would we- love to get a film scanner, but that's like the pie in the sky, forty thousand uh, dollar goal. But we can make this a reality. Mm-hmm. We can, and we can only do it with your help. And there's tons of perks. You can get all the out of print Gold Ninja Video Blu-rays. There's eleven. Oh, there's more than that. So many went out of print since I started the crowdfunding campaign. Roger Corman, no more. Three Stooges. As of this time of recording, two copies left. Wow, yeah. that took forever to sell out. <laughs> so long, and it's one of the best. I I love that Three Stooges uh, said so much. We did so much work for that one. Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla. You can hear our commentary. Mm-hmm. You can hear the Sammy Petrillo prank phone call album. Oh, so much stuff. Okay, this is what makes our podcast inaccessible because I'll just throw her out names. You're like the Sammy Petrillo prank show and they'll be like, oh, of course. I always want I to just listen. assume everyone listening knows who Sammy Petrillo, the forgotten Jerry Lewis impersonator. Mm. People you, know who he is. You can also get a subscription of the next six discs. You can also get the posters that are available now and you can just give me as much money as you can afford because you can just click donate and just you know I want to give Justin $5,000 and I'll be like yes please you eccentric millionaire you if Megan Ellison of Annapurna Pictures is listening this can be your home video (laughs) arm yes it can so just I mean what is $10,000 to Megan Ellison nothing nothing nothing. so you can uh, check out at goldenninjavideo.com there is a little donate button at the top it'll take you right to the Indiegogo and we should just talk a little bit about the telethon uh what a roller coaster ride that was right will so much fun you did a 12 hour twitch stream telethon where you showed a bunch of movies and you did a lot of skits Mm -hmm. some of which i was in yep uh will play jackie chan video games i'm saying that those people can watch it you can't but if you go to youtube emily milling wrote a golden ninja video telethon theme song the day before and she performed it live and i uploaded the video of her singing it very catchy if you watch it you will instantly donate you cannot you know it's like a hip thing so check it out if you need that extra push now i wasn't there but i'm t- i'm told tony curtis introduced a movie 
Yes, he did. I, I need to upload those videos. <laughs> um, perhaps someone uh, recording right now imitating Tony Curtis and Peter Bogdanovich. <laughs> or should they live like, I can't believe I missed that. Like, I, I can never see it again. I do like that. Okay, this is, this is so impenetrable for some <laughs> listeners. But let me explain. In the 90s, Tony Curtis, the mm-hmm. actor recorded a bunch of DVD intros to public domain movies on a DVD company called Delta Laser Light. Mm. And he was clearly reading from a teleprompter and he wore weird black gloves <laughs> and he mispronounced a lot of stuff. So I impersonated Tony Curtis. How would it start? Like, give us like five seconds of like, taste. Hi, I'm Tony Curtis. <laughs> Welcome to Laser Light Special Edition Classics. Here's what, here's to, what... <laughs> Today, we're talking about Orson Welles and one of his great films, Mr. Arkadin. Don't give don't give people too much away. You know what? If we hit $35,000, those videos get out there. <laughs> but not until then. So what are we doing next week, Will? We are going to have a little bit of fun, and we are going to talk about Christopher Guest. Now, are you a Christopher Guest head? I was back in the day. Oh, really? I was never one that's like, ooh, can't wait for the next Christopher Guest film. Oh, I saw A Mighty Wind theatrically. I was a huge fan. I loved Spinal Tap. But I haven't really watched any of those movies in... Long time. So you think they still hold up? I want to see. I mean, I watched uh, Mighty Wind like mm, six months ago. Very funny. I've never seen it before. I mean, Fred Willard in that movie. Oh, so good. Oh. So good. So that's what we'll be doing next week. Until then, my name's Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. You know what's hard, Will? Having famous parents. You know... I wouldn't say it's hard, but what I would say is the name can't do everything for you. No, you need talent. Listen, I'm an ex-equestrian turned filmmaker, (laughs) just like Spielberg's daughter. That's a very typical career path. Many people have gone from equestrian to filmmaker. Uh, I think John Ford did it. (laughs) Yep. And now a second filmmaker is doing it. I don't remember what her first name is. Uh, Uh, You know, Spielberg Jr. I I know, Destry Spielberg. (laughs) Destry Spielberg? Oh, Steve, we know where you got that name. So Fran Leibowitz has had some good quotes in her day. Mm -hmm. One of them was, I'm paraphrasing, she said something like, People always say that nepotism isn't real because it just gets your foot in the door. Getting your foot in the door is the whole thing. <laughs> That's what you need. To get, yeah. You can be bad at your job, but if your foot in the door, people know you, you will continue doing that thing. Like if Destry Spielberg served as a P, <laughs> as a PA yeah. on her one of her father's films, people would kill for that opportunity. And not only would they kill, when she's on that job, they're probably like tiptoeing around her, giving her very little work. Yeah, and so now she feels the need. It's not enough that you're Destry Spielberg and you get a movie. She now has to be a good person. So she has to say that, like, oh, oh, um, actually, it only gets you so far. Like, I mean, God, like, you have to direct the movie. (laughs) Do you know how stressful that is? When you have the weight of paying rent or, you know, just getting anything with money taken off of your shoulders... It's just nothing but stress about the actual product. I mean, yeah. I mean, you, Justin, you're a filmmaker. You've, yes. You've, you've made films mm-hmm. and you and you don't have the last name Spielberg. <laughs> no, I don't have the last name Spielberg. And it's hard. It's very hard. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it's so funny when interviews like that happen because you just want to, like, take them aside and be like, hey, if anybody asks you this question, you just go, yeah, I'm very lucky I have this. Like, it's gotten me the foot in the door, and I'm going to do the best that I can. Or you just don't answer that question. Yeah, don't don't answer it. I mean, look, Sofia Coppola, very talented. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, she got all the opportunities she got because of her dad. Yes. Yeah, and, and that doesn't change the fact that the movies, some of them are good. Mm-hmm. But we wouldn't hear about her if her last name wasn't Coppola. I mean, if you look at any Bollywood star, and you look as like, are their parents famous? Every single one of them. I mean... 
every current Hollywood star. Every current star. Bollywood star, yes. Uh, Hollywood star, too. Oh, oh yeah, Every current true. Hollywood star. Isn't I mean, it weird that there's, like, uh, family uh, acting like, you know, like brothers and sisters, and they're all actors as well? I mean, what are the chances? It's insane. Like, Andy McDowell's daughter is a big actress <laughs> really? now. Really? Yeah, she's Margaret Qualey, the one from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, well, the, every almost every kid in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a child of a famous I mean, that person. was obviously a very conscious yes. choice on Tarantino's part. He was able to get so many because there were so many of them. <laughs> yeah, they all want to be actors. Yeah. But anyway, that news story was going around very funny, made me laugh. And especially that like Ben Stiller jumped into the comedy, like oh. it's really difficult. And it's like, Ben, Ben. I mean, yeah, you can speak because you don't have fame. Wait a minute. Yeah. Yeah, you do. <laughs> and look, nobody's saying that these people don't have any talent. Yes. Like, like they have talent. They're, they have talent. Funny. They have talent. Sure, they work. They work hard. Mm -hmm. It's hard to make a movie, even if you do have every opportunity. But eighty percent of the work is done for you with that. Talent. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if if you grew up in like a shitty apartment in the bad side of town, mm. uh, you can have the exact same amount of talent. Yeah. I hate to break it to people. Movie making is very expensive yeah. and very difficult to do. So I hope you have rich parents or rich and famous parents that'll, you know, open the door a little bit. I mean, there's tons of people, though, that have come up from nothing like J.J. Abrams. Wait a minute. Oh, no. His dad's a famous agent. OK, uh, I can think of some other ones right, <laughs> that don't have famous parents as well. Nope. Yep. Everyone in Hollywood, they're related to somebody that's already uh, well-established. So, folks, watch Impossible Horror. <laughs> yeah, that was the long con. <laughs> that's what we were getting to. It's like, watch some films directed by Justin DeGlue.